everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One podcast, where we spend 30 minutes speaking about the Parsha. Our episodes in the Book of Breshit focus on family and interpersonal dynamics. These conversations are candid, insightful, and respectful. We aim not to psychoanalyze the biblical figures, but to learn from them as we stumble through our own beautifully messy lives. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor or memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast at matan.org.il. Parshat Chayesara opens with the monumental purchase of Marat HaMachpelah, the cave of the patriarchs and the people of Chit. This purchase still resounds so powerfully in modern-day Israel. The majority of the Parsha concerns itself with the search for Yitzchak's wife by the servant of Avraham, Eved Avraham. Resolved to marry his son to a woman from within the extended family, Eved Avraham goes out in search of a shiduch. Today's episode will focus on a reading of this story and how it connects to Yitzchak and Rivka's relationship. The Parsha ends by filling in the rest of Avraham's family life, his children with his wife Keturah. Notably, she is not a Pelegish, but a full wife. But despite this, he bequeaths all his wealth to Yitzchak. It feels as if the Torah wants to make sure we know that while Avraham did continue on with another familial chapter, his chapter with Sarah always remained the central one. The final section recounts the children of Ishmael in what is the Book of Breshit's consistent way of exiting a character offstage once and for all by naming their descendants. It will do the same with Esau's numerous descendants in a future chapter. Joining me for today's episode is a colleague and friend, Shannon Goldberg, who teaches Israeli and American post-high school students and serves as Mashkichar Ruchanit in the Medial Oz Beit Midrash for Women, an affiliate of Yeshiva Taratzion. She is a Yuasar Halacha, a contributing editor for Drecheha, womenandmitzvot.org, and the author of the book, What Do You Really Want? Trust and Fear in Decision-Making at Life's Crossroads and in Everyday Living. It was on the occasion of the book's publishing that she first came on the podcast over a year ago for episode 12, and that we had the first chance to meet. Shayna, it's great to have you back. Wonderful to be here. So, you know, I open these episodes speaking about the fact that we're not going to psychoanalyze the biblical figures, but the <laughs> truth is that today's episode is going to be a little bit closer to that, or maybe even to look at their relationships, and specifically the relationship of Yitzchak and Rivka as paradigms, things that we can learn from. Yes, they have some pitfalls to them, and I think that they're really important to notice, in the first episode on the Book of Breshit that I put out with uh, Rachel Weber-Leshaw, we spoke a little bit about the importance of looking through the Book of Breshit and learning it through the eyes of couples, and that we looked at sort of the paradigm of the first couple of Adam and Chava, and sort mm-hmm. of what ideas and models there could be, and we saw ideal models, we saw the demise of one of those models immediately in the third parak of Sefer Breshit. And today with you, let's go a little bit deeper into this idea of looking at the relationships between the Avot and specifically the one that really has the headlines of this week's Parsha. Absolutely. So first of all, I think also it's important to be careful not to psychoanalyze, but making observations or gaining insights, I think that's what Torah is all about. It's supposed to be something that's relevant for all time and uh, to us also in our day-to-day lives. And one of the things that we see right off the bat in Tefer Brishid is that each one of the Avot and Imahot 
couples really builds their relationship in a different way. So I think the Torah is uh, giving us different models of how a couple can meet and connect and get to know each other. Right, beginning with Avram and Sarah, who in essence grew up together. They're the couple that knows each other from the neighborhood or met in high school or their sneef. In this case, they're even related. Uh, Avram was actually the uncle of Sarah, who uh, was the daughter of his brother Haran. They're very familiar. They're comfortable with each other. And I think that may be part of what we see later on. They go on to become this power couple that works together. It tells us that Parshat Lachlacha, that Hanafash Asher Haran, that Avram was Megayer et Ha'anashim, Vesara Megayer et Nahanashim. They really, um, they complemented each other. They had common goals. And then we get to Yaakov and Rachel later on who have that love at first sight connection. They meet at the hotspot of their time, which was clearly the well. That's where everyone seems to meet. There's attraction. There's adrenaline. There's that intense feeling right away, as opposed to Yaakov and Leah, who we know had not just a, an arranged marriage, but a forced marriage that was perhaps against, for sure, Yaakov's will and maybe even Leah's. Not simple. And yet with time, they grow together as a couple, so much so that she becomes the primary mother of most of his children. And in our Parsha, of uh, Parsha Chayesara, which we're going to focus on today, we have Yitzchak and Rivka. Yitzchak and Rivka, I would say, are the model of a classic shidduch, someone who thinks of an idea, um, they need to meet, they need to get to know each other. And yet, one of the observations that I think is so important is that in this case of a shidduch couple, we still have the first time in the Torah that we see the word ahava is explicitly used. It says, That it's once Yitzchak actually brings Rivka back to his mother's tent and they get married. And Refresh comments on this, that it's interesting to see that we would think sometimes that for sure in our modern lives, that you're supposed to fall in love and then you get married. And he sees, uh, he says here that the fact that the word ahava comes only after they get married is uh, meant to teach us that sometimes it's the true giving, the real investment, the commitment is what's necessary in order to lead to that deeper kind of love, not just the fatuation, adrenaline, high kinds, but the fact where you really, the, po- the kinds where you really feel that you're giving um, and even sacrificing for someone. You know, there's a really interesting article that was written by Tuvia Perry. I think I'm pronouncing his name correctly. It came out many, many years ago in uh, the 46th edition of Megadim, which is mm. Yeshiva Taratzion, really Herzog's Tanakh journal. And he himself was a psychologist, if I remember correctly. And he has a, a very lovely article that's called Zugyut Besefer Bereshit. That's all about this topic. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. And he uh, very clearly does try and psychoanalyze <laughs> the vote. But I just want to add two ideas that I think are really worth. He really goes through uh, these three these three uh, couples. And there are others as well in the book of Breshit. And one thing that he adds really nicely about Avraham and Sarah is that, as you said, there is something very egalitarian about their relationship. It's the most that we see like this joint mission that they share. But that joint mission sometimes leads, again, this is his reading, to 
certain maybe too much independence in the emotional space meaning mm. in when it comes to hagar and those stories and where avraham leaves sarah in the stories where he claims that, that she's his sister that that independence or seeing the other as fully capable of being on their own sometimes lead them to support, sort of leaving them emotionally mm. alone or afloat which again one could agree or disagree with that really i just want to yeah i want to <laughs> just put it out there and the other one that i'll just add in for now about rachel and and yaakov is that obviously Yaakov is coming in a very, very vulnerable position when he meets Rachel. Uh, he's coming, having escaped his home, having been through an ordeal where he's essentially masqueraded as his brother. And uh, he, he's in a very, I think, understandably psychologically precarious position. And in that moment, when he sees Rachel, in this moment, I think we can sort of describe as nothing other than sort of love at first sight, how in the article he presents is that Yaakov loves the feeling of meeting somebody who feels dependent on him. Hmm. Uh, and so he meets Rachel, and as opposed to the model of Rifka that we'll talk about soon, she herself, you know, he saves her, right? He moves, right. He moves the, stone the stone off of the well, and, and, she, and he has this moment of feeling that he's actually saving somebody else when he himself has been the underdog for a very, very long time. Yeah, yeah he's the hero. But what sometimes happens, as he said, in those hero relationships is that the love or infatuation that you feel sometimes is more of a figment of your own imagination or your own mind than it is necessarily in reality. And so what ensues between them is, you know, him not really seeing when he, of course, marries the wrong woman, which we have a general question, how could he not have noticed? Mm-hmm. I'll just add that someone once showed me a midrash that says that they were twins, yeah. Rachel and Leah, which, which I had not seen sense. that growing up, but definitely gave a lot of... Uh, insight into how that could have possibly happened. I also think it makes sense that th- even if they weren't twins, that they looked so similar because why else would the pasuk just talk about her eyes? Right. It's like that when the you see siblings, them. exactly, when you see siblings who look so similar, you have to mm-hmm. find like those very minute details that, right. set, that, that set them apart. So anyways, he says many other things, but I just wanted to throw in those two ideas about those two other couples. And again, we'll, we'll focus more now on Anitzchak and, and Rivka, but I also think that point about about that shidduch is very powerful. We shouldn't discount the power sometimes of a couple being brought together. And, you know, we're used to thinking about it just as disastrous, but sometimes sometimes it can be wonderful. Yeah. And they can love each other very deeply. Yes. Yeah. And a lot of times um, something, you know, tell students all the time who are dating this, that sometimes something that starts slower and calmer and you build with time sometimes gets to a, a level that you never could have imagined and definitely a depth that uh, you couldn't have anticipated from the beginning. One of the other, I think, questions that arises on this Parsha when we think about Rivka, because Rivka, you know, we don't know a lot about her, but we have to take the snapshots that the Torah gives us and kind of build that picture of who she is. And certainly the question of why would someone want to leave their family to go so far away to live a life in a country and a culture and with a family that they don't really know. And if you pay attention to the words in um, this parak, parak Haftalit, of the story here, we see that Rivka is taken by Eliezer. She doesn't know Yitzchak yet. She doesn't know anything about him. But she's already taken by the Eved of Avraham and already of Yitzchak that comes. And we see this in the fact that if we look at the very beginning of the parak, when Avraham is conversing with Eliezer and giving him the mission of going to find a way for his son, so over and over, Eliezer is referred to as an Eved. He's the domestic help, you know, of Avraham Avinu. In Pasuk Bet, Vayomer Avraham Elavdo, Pasuk Kei, Vayomer Elav HaEved. 
And he comes to Haran and he meets Rivka and she's engaged uh, in bringing him and his camel's water. And as soon as the Torah switches to speaking about Rivka's perspective on Eliezer, all of a sudden he's no longer referred to as an Eved, but he's referred to as an Ish. So starting in Pasuk Hashem. And even when um, later on, Bituel and Lavan ask Rivka if she would indeed be willing to go home with this far- foreigner. So we see that Rivka is really taken by this person. In her eyes, he's not an Evid at all. He's not, you know, that domestic worker that seems he's a dignified gentleman. And I think that perhaps the Torah wants to give us insight into something, which is that clearly Eliezer stood out in his behavior and the way that he carried himself. And it's not surprising because we know that she grew up in a family with a complicated father and brother. Um, There's greed, there's manipulation, and she herself is the paradigm of chesed. That's the whole test of like, who's going to be a woman that's going to go out of her comfort zone and work hard and bring water, not just to me, but also to my camels. And I think she sees this man who has come from somewhere else and it's like her ticket out of the difficult circumstances that maybe she has grown up in. She wants to be part of something different. She wants to be part of Avram Avinu's family of Anashim. And this is, I think, why when Eliezer is uh, actually ready to go back and, and turns to her and they ask Rivka, are you going to go with this strange man? And, and she says, Elech. You know, there's no hesitation there, so much so that Rashi jumps on that and says, me. I'll go on my own accord. Va'afi minchem rotzim. Uh, she's willing to travel back with Eliezer. Can I add something sure. wild there that I, I think I once heard in the name of Rav Samet, but I didn't check this before, that Rivka thinks that she's marrying the Evid. Hmm. Okay, which is like a totally subversive interpretation. And the reason, I'm, I'm suggesting it because I know this is not what you're going to suggest later, but the reason she falls off when she sees Yitzchak, it's because she realizes that she's been confused. Interesting. I know. <laughs> it's so I mean, wild. It, no, it goes with, you know. I think it, it, no, it, it, it's it built in exactly that. what you're saying. It goes with this because we see the switch at the end of the parak is all along she's traveling with him. The Talchana Achorei Ha'ish, meaning yeah. all along he's the Ish. And then all of a sudden they get back to Canaan and they look out and they see Yitzchak has come the Sorch Besadeh, right? He's out there, he's davening. He has maybe this aura, this glow about yeah. him because we know he was a, a carbon mm-hmm. on the Mizbeach. Yeah. And all of a sudden, in Pasuk Samachay, it says, Vatomer el ha'eved. One second, all along he was the yes. Ish, but it says, Vatomer el ha'eved, mi ha'ish halazeh. Yeah. Who's that guy? Ha'olach besadeh likratinu. Vayomer ha'eved hu adoni. So I think now that she gets a glimpse of Yitzchak, it could be what you said, that all of a yeah. sudden she realizes, or it could be that she's like, whoa, I thought you were an Ish. Yes, but I realize I can, but I now can aim even I higher. Got, yeah, I didn't even begin to understand, like, I guess what what's out there, what potential there is. Now that I see him, I realize you're the Eved, mi ha'ish halazeh, who is that Ish? And this gives us a little, a lot of insight into 
already a dynamic that's beginning to form of kind of the awe and the respect that she has for Yitzchak Avinu, something so different from where she came from, not what she's used to. I think also another really nice insight that, uh, that I saw in this article was that, you know, when somebody looks for a shiduch, and you know this because you do this so much in your own life, when you look for people who could be good partners for each other, so very often, I, I think everybody has their own theories about the kind of things they look out for, but one of the things that we definitely see here is that the, is that the Eved looks for traits that seem to be that seem to complement Yitzchak, meaning if he is sort of this holier, somewhat passive, more, you know, he's the only man who isn't active in his own betrothal scene, as opposed to all the other men, and there are more than just two. Uh, he's the only man who's absent, which seems to also be significant regarding his personality. That he More is, of an introvert. Exactly. In he's, he's, uh, he's definitely more in the, in the background. That Rivka's personality seems to be a bit of the opposite, right? She is go-getter. She's active. She is is displaying her capabilities again in a way that seems to be utterly self-confident, and not in a way that she's trying to display them. She that's just who she is. And so the Eved sees her and says, "Oh wow, this is a great compliment for for my master. She has all these traits that he really could use, right? They could fill mm-hmm. in things that he doesn't have, and I assume also vice versa." So I think that's also a really, really nice point about why the Eved sees her and says, oh, it's not just because she's a tzaddikah, it's because her her tzidkut, her righteousness, manifests in things that could really complement who Yitzchak is. That's excellent. I think also when, when Eliezer says, you know, when she says, who is that? And he responds, who Adoni? The next phrase is, that she takes her scarf and she covers her face. Now, some of the classic mefarshim continue their mahalach over here that she was very tenua and she was very modest and therefore earlier when it says it's not that she actually fell off the camel like you said but rather that she adjusted maybe she was riding you know the camel with one leg on each side and now she switches to side saddle and now she covers her face and you know but um then it's has a fascinating perush which talk about psychoanalysis like yeah. you and i would never dare to say this and he brings it <laughs> the article which also is interesting even Nitziv says this so I can bring it yeah when I read this <laughs> to students every year they're like wow because it's the kind of thing that like we'd be nervous to say but the Nitziv says that when she covers her face it's not because she's trying to be Tanua and it's coming from modesty but I will read to you the Nitziv says Mirov Pachad Vibusha it's coming out of a sense of almost, I don't want to call it embarrassment, but like a feeling of, you know, insecurity or like nervousness. She has a feeling of like, I'm, I'm unworthy. How can I be the wife of, of this man who is clearly praying with intent and she feels like the Shrina is around him. And from then on, um, there was something from that very moment that was, I guess, you know, set in her heart in terms of the dynamic, the relationship. And the Nativ says, We know that Sarah and we know that Rachel, when they had issues, they had no problem speaking their minds. You know, Rachel, and Sarah has no problem telling Avram that she wants Hagar out of the house or Ishmael out of the house. 
But that's not what we see with Rivka, even though we know that coming up in next week's Parsha of Toldot is a very complicated story where Rivka has very strong views. It's not that she thinks she's wrong. It's not that she is ready to be nechnad and submit to her husband's understanding. Rather, Yitzchak and Rivka and Muluchilakim Badeyot, they have different opinions about their children. But, she, she doesn't have the ability to speak to him openly. She knows the truth. It's not that she thinks she's wrong. And yet, the awe or the respect or maybe almost the slight intimidation that she has with her husband has huge implications for her feeling that she could kind of directly confront him. So again, it's not that she thinks that she's not right, but I think that because of the way that she, from this very first encounter, experiences Yitzchak, she feels that she can't say it to him as it is. And that, of course, is going to deeply impact the story of the Brachot. Yeah, I'll just fill in for those who are not completely holding another portion of Brachit, that this really is one answer to the question of why does Rivka not just tell Yitzchak about the prophecy she's been given? And there are different opinions about that, whether she did or not. Certainly in the verses, she never tells Yitzchak about... The prophecy of Verbavia would say. Exactly. Right, that there clearly has to be a conflation of the order of Yaakov and, and Esau's birth, and that, uh, and that Yaakov is destined for something greater. And she, this idea goes along with many of the Parshanim who say, yeah, it seems that she never, I think the Ramban also writes this and the Radak, that she never tells him. And the question is, why? If she could just speak, it would have it would have avoided manipulation, it would have avoided masquerading, it would have avoided lying, it would have avoided having Yaakov having to run out of the house like a criminal. And so this is, a, I think, a really, really deep insightful psychological point that there's something that and we all know that this happens now i think in in many relationships we have today where we hope obviously not all of them function like this where we hope that there is communication that unfolds over time it's not just about that moment of what someone decides when they first meet them and then that that dynamic gets ingrained but it's a dynamic that can unfold but i think that it's a really important point and also relationships were likely very different then as well and so there's something that she sort of like takes in her heart and she doesn't feel comfortable expressing herself. I think there's also a point here about how the families that we come from, the backgrounds that we have, our our histories, like as much as uh, somebody could grow and change whatever, we bring all of that with us into our relationships. It's certainly part of the dynamic that has to be balanced and navigated. And here, I mean, there's wonderful things that come out of it because Rivka has insights into her children that perhaps Yitzchak doesn't have because she's been exposed to things. She kind of, she understands uh, people maybe in a different way than, than Yitzchak does. And yet the gaps between their backgrounds affects a little bit their ability to uh, communicate fully about these things. They just have different ways of, of seeing things and different ways of talking about it. And uh, again, it's not that you can't marry someone with a different background. I think the Torah wants us to see right here that this couple is one of the Avodani Mahod, and in the end it works, but uh, the Torah doesn't shield us from the tensions that could arise around that.
One other point that I think is really significant on this parsha, also connected to relationships, is that this is a parsha of transitions. It's called Chaye Sarah, but this parsha is not about the life of Sarah. Not at all. Right? You started with the fact that the parsha opens with actually the burial of Sarah and Marad and Mechtela. Uh, this parsha is the transition from Sarah to Rivka, and we see that very clearly in the pasuk that I read earlier of Aviyaha Yitzchak Ka'ohala Sarah Imo that Yitzchak brings. Rivka to the tent of his mother Sarah. Now the Ramban says literally he took her to Sarah's tent. There was the tent of the uh, the wife, and now she uh, takes that over. Rashi says that Yitzchak brought her to her own tent, but that tent took on the character of Sarah's tent. That tent represents the legacy of Sarah, the role that she played, the fact that there is a near Daluk and you know all the things that Rashi says about that tent. But to me, when I read this, like glaring, I think it jumps out at us that Yitzhak doesn't just want a wife. He wants someone that will play the role of a matriarch. He wants that woman that is going to have that open tent. Maybe, as you said, will be the compliment to him. will be involved in chesed. will have a warm home. will will be a teacher. It always reminds me of uh, my father, who was a rabbi in Young Israel Great Neck for many years. He actually began his career single. He was 25 and single, and he married my mother two years later when he was 27. And it was very important for him that, that he married someone who also very much was comfortable. There's different relationships. This isn't the only model, obviously, and it's also, uh, you know, complicated questions in terms of salaries and finances, but he wanted someone who was excited about being in that that member of a team of being being a rabbitin. And I think we see that here with Yitzchak that specifically says he takes her home. Only then Rifka, only then does he take her And then after it says that their loved, you know, he's comforted. I think that moment where he, he lost his mother, and now the fact that there's a transition going on, there's a passing of a church to the next generation, always reminds me of the Pasuk in Kohelet of Dor Holech, the Dor Ba, that one generation moves on and another comes, or the Minhag of Svardim under the Chuppah to make the Brachan Besamim, because they say the older generation is experiencing that feeling of a Dor Holech, and they need that feeling of uh, revival. Um, it's captured so beautifully here. That stepping into those adult shoes when you realize that uh, we're not just getting married and a young couple in love, but we're also moving forward in terms of carrying on a, a heritage or a legacy. And I'll just share one more story, a personal story with that. I remember uh, when my husband Judah and I moved down to Philadelphia. He was studying medicine University of Pennsylvania and we set up our apartment and we were far from home. I'm from New York and he's from New Jersey and we set up our table and I remember we drove down after Sheva Brachot and he started school literally the next day and we sat down to dinner the first night and he said to me like, where should I sit? And I said, what do you mean? Like the head of the table. <laughs> and I remember he stopped and he said, but that's like the daddy seat. Like I don't, I don't belong there. And it's that moment where you're 20, 30, whatever, however old you are, that you realize, wow, I'm moving kind of forward. You know, we're not parents yet. We're not there yet. We're not, we're these little kids who are playing house. And yet the torch has been passed or there's like a, you kind of could look into the future and see that 
there's a transition that's uh, been happening here. And I think very much the end of this parak captures that for us. I also think the very psychological point about how we obviously look for traits in the people we love that are connected <laughs> yes. to the people who raised us. Like, I think yes. that that's a really, really glaring point here as well. We love what we love. Uh, sometimes it's comforting when we realize we've married something that's similar, something we could be hard to find if you realize we've married something that's similar. Usually it's somewhere in between. So he's looking for his mother also. Yes. <laughs> yes, I think very clearly he's looking for his mother. Also, if you think about the fact that that Sarah basically, I think the Midrash hits it on on the head, that Sarah basically dies as a result of the Akedah. The loss of Sarah was a, was a traumatic loss. It wasn't like a loss that was well prepared for. You see that in the way that Avram responds as well. And I think that him, A, looking for love in a way that I think the women know how to give in mm-hmm. Sefer Breshit. You see that also very much by Rivka. Rivka is the one who was going to love Yaakov with no qualifying reason, whereas Whereas, you know, Yitzchak loves Esav because of the Tzayid Befiv, you know, and so he's really looking for that, for that female and yes, maybe maternal peace. And I think that it would, it's, it behooves all of us, men and women, when we realize that some of what we look for in our spouse is something that we receive from for parents or those who are our caretakers and throwing a little promo here to read Imago books. I think they're really, really insightful and helpful. But I think that, yeah, that's like such a basic concept in the Torah that was brought to us in this story. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also the playing house, which I love that phrase. It's totally true. At some point you feel like you've stopped taking it. I think it took us years, honestly. Yeah, but. I'm not sure I'm there. <laughs> Sometimes it's like one of my kids will come into our bed in the middle of the night and I'll like turn to you and I'll be like, she thinks I'm her mother. Like that I'm the safe spot. Like, doesn't she know I'm just like a kid? You know, like you, I don't know. I know I'm 43, but I still sometimes feel that feeling of, can I really be that mother figure that my mother was to me? You know, is that really how my kids see me? Thankfully, most Um, of it happens in their conception and not necessarily because of what we, meaning a lot of it is what they think of in their own mind. I agree with you. Sometimes I'll, I'll look around and be like, are these all my children? Are they, yeah, how did these all, I remember, I think I had them, but I don't understand really how they've really all gotten here. Yeah. I think also yeah. your point about like that he's looking for his mother. Let's just say whether someone wants to marry someone like their mother or Dafka different than their mother, there's no yeah. escaping that mother figure sure. in their dynamic. Of course. You know, it's going to continue to resonate very powerfully. Totally. through their relationships. And I think the earlier couples recognize the pros and cons of each of those models. I think they come in with like so they come with a lot of wisdom and a lot of and a lot of, you know, they come really they come in really ahead uh, when they realize those points about what they're responding to, what are their pressure points when they realize what are the things they they grew up with and nothing has to do even with dysfunction. It's just the reality of how we grew up as humans. That's before bringing in anything that could be dysfunctional. So I think here there's something I agree with you. It's very moving, this scene. It's really, really moving that when you feel that, you know, while while it's going to get complicated between Yitzhak and Rivka in the, in the coming scenes and it could be, almost be frustrating, there's something, I, I so agree with that reading. There's something in this initial union that, and especially because it's a, sh- a shidduch and, and, you know, Rivka was going with her intuition and with her gut feeling of like, yeah, no, this is a journey I want to take. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm in for this yeah, ride. Yeah, she's all in. She's totally in. I think that it's a really moving moment to f- see how that intuition takes them at least to a, a moving beginning point. Yeah, and I'll add even, you know, from next week's Parsha, the very beginning of Toldo, when um, unfortunately they're facing the challenge of infertility, and it says, 
that he is uh, beseeching Hashem, like facing his wife. And Rashi comments that, I always see that as this beautiful commentary that they're davening for the same thing. They're on the same page. They have the same goals and dreams and aspirations, but each one is in their own corner davening. It's something very powerful, I think, that couples often experience that sometimes a couple feels united and feels connected and yet each one is still an individual and each one still experiences whatever they're going through in their own way even if they're going through a similar challenge or a wonderful thing at the end of the day that individuality and here maybe even more so because they come from such different backgrounds and different experiences and the Mepharshim over and over comment on that you know they say like Yitzchak is answered ultimately because uh, he's a tzaddik ben tzaddik and on the other hand there's the irony of he's the tzaddik ben tzaddik and and yet there's an evite because he's a tzaddik ben tzaddik uh, that that he has that Rivka has to kind of like literally open his eyes to so there's so many great things in Sefer Breshit that continue to resonate so deeply for us today, 2022. And it's like, you could feel like, wow, it's, it's really incredible how these stories continue to be relevant. And also how you can read them when you're five or learn them in Gan and they mean one thing. And then you can read them as an adult and all of a sudden you, you kind of glossed over, you know, when you were at a different age. Shana, thank you so much for this conversation. Really appreciate you coming out. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do One-on-One and Women's Torah Learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.